0: Again, if you don't have a Bible with you, one of your own, you can grab the pew Bible nearby. We'll try to be working through the passage. My goal generally when we gather together is that that's what we're doing is working through a passage. Um, I want you to have confidence that when I'm up here speaking, this is not Darren's latest ideas or Darren's harebrained ideas, but that this is us. Hearing what God has to say to us in the Scripture, so you should always hold me accountable that we follow along with what is read in Scripture. Our our main text is going to be out of uh, Second uh, Chapter two, verses one through eleven. This morning, let's let's back up and let's read together Philippians, starting chapter one, verse twenty seven through two verse eleven. So. Look up with me in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 through chapter 2, verse 11. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Chapter 2. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ Grass withers, the flower fades, word of our God stands forever. So we're taking pretty big chunks of this uh, book together. We've spent... This is now our third week in Philippians, and we're already going to take the first half of the second chapter. So we're on a pretty quick pace through this for, for us here. But Lord willing, that's the pace we'll be on. Uh, we'll finish this up here in just a few more weeks, eight times, hopefully eight Sundays through the book of Philippians, which means we're trying to grab general big ideas that Paul is communicating to the church at Philippi. Often when these letters went around, that's what this is. This is a circular letter, letter. When we talk about the epistles, the Pauline epistles, these are Paul's writings to a specific church, church at Philippi. And they would write this letter and they'd send it around and they would, they would read it. They would copy it down for themselves and they'd pass the letter on to other churches. They were circular letters. And so oftentimes what they would do as a church gathering is is just read the whole book of Philippians when they gathered. They just read the whole book. So you think I read a lot of scripture. Well, back in that days, you, you would have just sat and read entire letters together in one sitting. So there is there is a general idea that Paul is pushing for here. And what we're going to try to get at this morning is is answering this question, how in the world is church ever supposed to work? Like how how is... How is church, if we say we are gathered for our joy and and our joy together, how is that actually going to happen? Because the reality is when we look around and the different individuals that we have in this church, we have as many different desires as we do people in this place. We have as many different conflicts as we do people in this place. How can the church... Authentically, realistically, be about the joy of every person. How can this, how can we get everyone, and how can everyone get what will make them glad? The reality is that we have a concept of happiness and joy in our world today that says, I'll be happy when I get what I want, right? Or I'll be glad when people make much of me. That's, that's the idea we have of happiness. When people applaud me, when people think well of me, when I get the recognition that I am due, then I will be glad, then I'll have joy. And when we take that mindset, I'm the center of life, I'm the center of the universe, people should recognize me, and I'll be happy when I get my due. When we take that and we roll it into the church, we have a disaster. When everyone's desire to be made much of is put front and center, we have a disaster. So he makes us ask the question, is true joy when others are caught up in making much of us or when we are caught up with others in making much of something else that we all find worth celebrating? Is true joy... When others are caught up in making much of you, I'll be happy when everyone sees how great I am and I'm valued and I'm, I'm recognized as this wonderful person that I am. Then I'll be happy. Is that true joy? Or is true joy when you and others gather around something else that is truly valuable, truly, treas- truly worth treasuring and celebrating that one great thing? And that's the argument that Paul is working on is this idea of your true joy is gathering around something that is truly valuable and celebrating it. That's why our main idea for this morning is that our joy is completed and our gathering together around the gospel. That's the main idea. Our joy is completed. Paul speaks, uses that language, complete my joy. Our joy is completed and our gathering together around the gospel, not in making others gather around ourselves. And we kind of all know this, right? So some of the greatest moments of joy are the times that you share with others as you enjoy something outside of yourselves. One of the most celebrated things in our community is Raider football. That was the right answer. If you were thinking something else, you were wrong. One of the most celebrated things in our community is Raider football. And you go there, I mean, I like Raider basketball too, but so you go to this event and... Everyone up in the stands watches the team play, and when the team wins, everyone's high-fiving each other and celebrating, and, you know, there's this there's this sense of enjoyment, and what did the people in the stands have to do with what happened on the field? Absolutely nothing, right? Went, so, you, you ever uh, watch the Super Bowl with a group of people, and you're all in your in your house, in, in this room, watching the TV, cheering out loud for your team to do well. They can't hear you. And, and yet there's this shared experience and this shared joy that when your team that you're all cheering for scores a touchdown or makes the interception, does something like that, you all are enjoying and celebrating something that you had nothing to do with. Isn't that a little... I mean, why would you celebrate this thing that's outside of you? But they are, they are these great moments of joy when the team succeeds and does well. You're not celebrating something you've done, but you're joining together with others and celebrating something else that has been done. When you go to concerts... You're, I mean, and you have this great time I, mean, we, I don't, haven't been to as many concerts as, as I would have liked to but we went to one concert at Wells Fargo and it was just so loud and there was another couple uh, that, that was at this concert and we still will reference this concert with each other and it's been 10 years at least or so ago we went to this concert but it was just such a, an experience. I mean if you've ever been at a powerful concert you, it was nothing that I was doing that I was enjoying it wasn 't like oh everyone I was lost in the sea of people, and I basically disappeared in the crowd of people that there was, but there was this corporate enjoyment in something else that was amazing. you ever stand and look at a sunset with someone else like we have a, we have contemplation rock at the back I don't know, at the back of our yard Bob put out a Rocks to divide. Bob Fisher's where I live. You guys all know. Remember him? He, he put out rocks to mark the lots of where you can mow, you know. And so there's this giant rock at the end of uh, one of our lots, and we go out there and we stand like Leonardo DiCaprio on the rock, you know, like we were big and tall, and, and watch the sunset, and we call it contemplation rock. We go back there and contemplate life. But we sit back there and you watch the sunset, and it, do you not enjoy looking at a sunset? But what, what happens at a sunset is nothing that involves you. It's the corporate enjoyment of something else magnificent being done, something that is much larger for you. When you think about the sunset, is actually not the sun going down, but is this little tiny rock that is rotating away from the sun, and you're a little tiny bug, a dust mite, on this rock that's rotating away from the sun, you don't sit there and think, boy, I hope everyone really sees how amazing I am. That would give me joy. You have joy in this amazing, glorious thing that is done outside of you. I could go on and on. We could talk about the stars. Uh, Fourth of July night, it it was the weekend, all these fireworks going off. And it was just sitting down dusk. And he looked over and there was just a little crescent moon. And Venus, the planet, was just as bright as could be. It looked like we were on, like on an alien planet. It was, you know, one of those moments where this moon is so bright. And, and this beautiful little planet. Not a star, a planet that the sun's reflecting off of. And just how huge this all is. And I gathered everyone. I'm like, look, there's, does everyone see Venus? And everyone in the family that I was there with stopped and looked and enjoyed the glory of what God had done. In that moment, we were nothing. God was everything, and our joy was caught up in something outside of ourselves. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? That there is something about our, our joy is completed in our gathering together around something huge and magnificent and glorious, which is contrary to the cultural mindset that we have, that my joy is when, when I'm made much of. No, your joy is found when you realize how tiny you are, yet how glorious and amazing God is and what He has done for us. The church is filled with joy when the individuals that make up the church get caught up together in celebrating something great that is outside of themselves and bigger than themselves. Whose, whose church is First Christian Church? Whose church is this? Is it, is it your church? Some people say it's my church. I've been accused of that. We're going to go to your church. It ain't my church. Whose church is this? Is this the board's church? Is this the denomination's church? Is this whose church is this? And there's only one right answer here. This church is Jesus' church or it's not a church. This is Jesus' church or it isn't a church. Which means all of us take a back seat to what is going on here and what Jesus wants to happen here. And a back seat to making ourselves made much of. This exists not for my glory, not for your glory, not for your appreciation or for my appreciation or for highlighting me. This exists... To gather around one great big reality, which is who God is and what He has done. This exists not for the glory of God, for the good of us certainly, but for the glory of God. And when we have, that's what this passage this morning is about. It is about understanding our place in this church that God is building. Across the globe, the universal church, understanding our place, which is a place of humility, of other centeredness, of making ourselves small and even insignificant so that that which is truly glorious can be highlighted. So that this church can be about the glory of who God is and what he has done. When we have that attitude that Paul is lifting up of not we're the center, but he's the center. When we have that attitude among ourselves that allows the beauty of the gospel to shine forth and the glory of God to be put on display for all that he has done. Then the church becomes a place of corporate joy then we become a place of joy as it works for the purposes of Christ overall. We'll get to that. So I've said before that the Philippian epistle is often called the epistle of joy, right? There's, and joy is mentioned numerous times throughout this epistle. But it, and it, so it, it does mention joy a lot. But it's a joy that is founded on something, It is a joy within a particular content and based upon a certain reality. And our passage today is speaking on a joy that is found and completed in the family of God, in a united church body. And we see this theme beginning with the reason why we backed up. From chapter 2, verse 1. You see this beginning in verse 27. Let this manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are doing what? Standing firm in one spirit. There's this unity around the gospel that is happening. happening That you are with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. There's this unity that Paul is pushing for in the church. And we'll see, you could peek back if you wanted to, at the beginning of chapter 4 with Yodia and Syntyche. There's this disagreement that's going on in Philippi, in Philippi, in the Philippian church. There's some sort of strife going on that we'll see when we get to chapter 4. Euodia and Syntyche are having some sort of a disagreement. And so Paul is bringing in this foundation of the unity and the importance of the church being unified around the gospel of Jesus Christ. He echoes it again in the start of chapter 2. If there's any encouragement. Now, he says if there is encouragement. But he's not really asking a question. Like he says, well, I don't know if there's any encouragement. And he's not saying it like that. It's saying the language that he's using there is since there is. If there's any encouragement, he's saying there is. So if, if there's any encouragement in Christ, and there is. If there's any comfort from love, and there is. If there's any participation in the Spirit, and there is. If there's any affection and sympathy, which there is. Complete Paul's joy By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. This joy that oozes from Philippians is a joy that is founded in having a unified body of believers joined around the gospel. It oozes the joy of Christ. There's this incredible description of unity that is to identify the church of Jesus Christ. Paul, in these next few verses, is going to discuss the ways that we can build this kind of fellowship. But before we get to that, just briefly, let me start with just saying the obvious, lest it go unsaid. You cannot build any kind of fellowship when you never gather with those that you are to build fellowship with. You. you got, in order to build unity together, you have to actually be together. Like you can't build a faux unity, which is we never get together, but we're unified. Well, that's kind of, um, that's a bag of hot air. There's nothing really to it. It's, it's a pretend unity that doesn't really exist. One of the saddest details of, of our church and I, I, I just share this for your prayerful consideration, because it, it does break my heart And trying to figure out what's going on, is that one of the saddest details is that we have 340 members on our books, yet 50 or 60 in regular attendance with us. What is going on with that? The sadness that comes with that... It's not that, well, we only have so few attendees. It's not that I'm so upset about the, we only have the so many regular attendants because as though, well, if we just had bigger numbers, then we could hang our hat on, well, at least we have this many people coming to church. The sadness is that there are so many who are connected enough to us to have their name on a list, yet they are not close enough to have their joy completed by having true fellowship. That's where the heartbreak is. The heartbreak is not, well, um, we want bigger numbers so we can pat ourselves on the back. The heartbreak is there are people who are close enough to be associated with us, but they are missing out on the joy that is completed in being unified around the glory of the gospel together. And so when you don't have that, when you're not gathering around on that, what they are missing out on is not we get to have elevated numbers so we can feel good about ourselves. The individual's. You are, when, when you neglect the church fellowship, when you neglect gathering together with other Christians, you are missing out on the joy that comes from gathering with other believers in the joy that is found in the gospel. You don't gather together to sing praises to God. When you don't gather together to pray with other believers. When you don't gather together to hear the preaching of the word, to read scripture together like we do going through Galatians. When you don't gather together to partake, of the body and blood of Jesus Christ, what you are doing there is you are missing out on the joy that is completed in the gathering together with other believers around the gospel. This is the reality that underlies this text. We're going to get into the other realities. But if that one's lost, forget the rest of them. If that one's gone, forget the rest of them. And so I only bring that up for this reason. If you love this church, if you love the church of Jesus Christ... Be laboring in prayer for those people who have the connection but are missing the joy that is found by fellowship here. And if your heart isn't disturbed by that, beg God that he would break your heart for those who are just connected enough to know our name and us to know their name, but not well enough to actually be here with us and join the gospel together with us. So, Paul does, the, that's, the, that's the reality that underlies this. But Paul goes on and gives three things that really emphasize this unity, how we build this unity. So, here we are, you all are here, how are we then going to build this unity? And the reality is, the first one is that we are going to be joined by the gospel. The thing that brings us together is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's clear from chapter 1. What are they striving side by side? For faith in the gospel. We gather the true church is made up of those who have seen the glory of God in the gospel and have repented and believed in what Christ has done. This is the central and unique unifying factor in those who make up the church. We are unified not around just geography, which we all are united in our geography, but there's a lot of people who live in the same area. We're not united by our socioeconomic status. You know, you got to... We check your W-2 when you come in, and you got to be at least above this mark, so you can. But you got, but you can't be too high, because then we don't want to. We don't make the rest of us feel bad. You got to hit a certain socio No, that's not where we're unified around. It's it's none of those things. We are unified around the gospel. We are those who have confessed ourselves as sinners. And trusting in Jesus Christ, his righteous life, his sacrificial death on the cross. These are the things that unite us. The gospel. We are those who rejoice in his resurrection and gladly live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. If you lose this, you've lost the church. To to lose the unity around the gospel is the death of church. And there are many who try it. We try to say things like, well, your, your position on Jesus doesn't matter. Your position on what the gospel is doesn't matter. We can still gather. There are those who try it, and there are entire denominations who try this, and churches who have abandoned the center of, of the gospel message. God created it all. We have fallen. Christ has come to redeem it by His life, death, resurrection, and the consummation of all things. They abandon this gospel and still try to gather around. But to lose the center point of the church... And to continue to gather is, is not a victory. Even if your numbers are huge, you do not have a church for the simple reason that Jesus is not the Savior and Lord of those who are gathered. If we're going to be a unified church, this is our center. That the gospel of Jesus Christ has taken hold of everyone who gathers. That's the first clear one from chapter 1, verses 27 through the first few verses of chapter 2. But the second thing is that we all then, what brings us unity, we're all humbled by the gospel. The gospel produces humility, right? He says, verse 3 do nothing, this is chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. The gospel produces humility in in at least two ways. The first way the gospel produces humility is that believing the gospel requires you to have an accurate view of yourself. The ground at the foot of the cross is, is level playing ground, and it's this ground. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So you don't get to say... Well, I've come to the cross, but that person over there, they're way worse than I am. They, they, don't, they don't get in. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. If you really have embraced the gospel, it brings humility such that you look around and you don't see... Way where you, you say you say hey, we're all in big trouble. There isn't there isn't someone worse than me, better than me. We're all in big trouble before a holy and righteous God. So there's humility. There's no one that walks through the door that you say I don't think God can take care of that person. They have gone too far. That's not true. They're not any further away from God than you were. you were when you didn't know God when you rejected God. So the gospel brings humility when you see that reality about yourself that the, foot of the, cross is le- the ground of the foot of the cross is level, we all have to come on our knees. There is, there is, you, you're not better than anyone else. It produces humility within the church. It produces humility in the church. That's the first way that gospel produces humility, is it requires you to have an accurate view of yourself. But the second way that it produces gospel, produces humility, is that when a person sees themselves rightly... As a sinner deserving of God's justice and trust in Christ as their Savior, we're going to get to it later in Philippians chapter 3. They see that everything they could ever want they have in Jesus Christ. They have a, a promised hope, they have a promised future, they have something so sure and so certain, there is nothing that can steal it away. So it produces humility in the Christian because they say, if if this person walks up and I lose the argument, or I lose my dignity, or I lose my status, or I lose my reputation, or I lose lose I lose all these things. Maybe they maybe they actually hurt me, they harm me, and I've I've lost a piece of I've, I've invested in a life, and I and I've and I they they've walked away and they've wounded me, and they've hurt me. A Christian is is humble to be able to do that to give themselves, to pour themselves out, to spend themselves upon others because they know that in having Christ, they have something nothing can take away. They have something so great and so valuable that were they to lose everything, they still count themselves in the category of gain. You can take everything away from me, Paul is saying in chapter 3, we'll get to, that if if everything is rubbish, he says, in order that I may be found in Christ, that I have him. So the gospel produces humility because it levels us all to be the, the reality of who we are as sinners, but it also gives us something so glorious and so beautiful to be reconciled to God. That trouble can come from every area and we can expend ourselves in service to others. And we know we have not lost. We can be maligned. We can be mistreated. We can suffer. We can undergo all of these things and do so, yes, even gladly, as Paul talks about, because of what we have in Christ, so we're joined by the gospel, we're humbled by the gospel, and then we're led by the example of the gospel. This uh, in your in your bulletin, I called this sermon the Carmen Christi, because this passage here, verses five through eleven, is typically called or historically called the, the Carmen Christi, which means the hymn of Christ. The, it's the hymn of Christ. This is a a recognized a special passage of scripture. Either Paul is composing this hymn, or it's a hymn that's known in the church that Paul is bringing in. But it's this beautiful passage about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that he is, have this mind among yourselves. Verse 5, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. "...taking the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death upon a cross." So there's, and therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess, Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. I commend the Carmen Christi to you. It's worth memorizing just to meditate on what Christ has done in the incarnation. You could dig into this passage for days, weeks, months, years, and understanding the complexity and the magnificence of what Jesus has done in coming. But for our purposes this morning, there's a general thrust of this passage, which is, look, when it comes to unity, when it comes to preferring others over yourself, look at what Christ did. Look at what Christ did. He brings this hymn in to highlight the reality of what Christ has done. Look with me if you want to uh, flip and if you got your Pew Bible back out and this is I got somewhere in my notes way back later we'll jump ahead to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 is on page 678 in your Pew Bible. Isaiah chapter 6. When this attitude infiltrates the church, the attitude that we talked about, when, when, when joy is found, when others make much of me, when that infiltrates a church, it, it brings disunity and disaster. You get a group of people who are constantly arguing over, I want church to be this way. You know, I want this color of carpet. I want this kind of music. I want this order of service. I want the temperature of the room to be at this temperature. I want uh, these programs to run. I don't want these programs to run. I want all these certain... And when... when, and when When your opinion, when your value, when your identity becomes the thing that is chief in the church, it enters, it goes into disaster. Everyone thinking that their opinion is the one that should count the most. But remember, whose church is this? This is Christ's. And therefore, your opinion will not always win, unless you're Jesus. But you're not. So your opinion doesn't get to win. So then we look at his example. Jesus has equality with God in eternity past. He was in the form with God. What did that look like? Isaiah chapter 6, page 678. Isaiah chapter 6. This is Isaiah writing. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Isaiah says, For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is the throne room that Christ inhabited, 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 that he lived before his incarnation. This is where he lived. Worship to Him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is where He existed eternally with God the Father before anything ever was. This is where He lived. Ceaseless praise before anything is created through Him, as Colossians tells us. This is where He exists. He has rights. No one else can even comprehend rights as the creator, the one whom through all things were made. He has rights. You want to talk about your rights? Christ has rights unfathomable to us. And what does he do? Philippians 2. He's in the form of God. He does not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, that's not meaning that Jesus is trying to get rights. It's, it's the Greek word is there, something to be held on to. Jesus lets them go. Jesus does not, makes himself of no reputation. He doesn't consider this equality, these rights, something to be held on to. No, this is my place, I'm going to keep it, I'm here. He doesn't grasp them to be held on to. He lets them go and does what? He empties himself. He takes the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. What does Jesus do with the rights he has? He doesn't cling to them, but he releases them. He takes on the form of a servant, becomes submissive, but not just submission, submission to the point of death, but not just submission unto death, submission to death upon a cruel cross. This is the attitude of Christ. Putting himself aside, counting others more significant. Letting go of his rights so that others could benefit. This is the attitude of Christ. This is the unity that is produced in the church around the gospel. Humbled by the gospel and given the example of the gospel. How does this complete the joy of the church? There is a real joy that comes in fellowship that gathers around sacrificial love for others. Sometimes the sacrificial love and preference of others comes your way. And that's a very good thing. As you pour your life out in service to others, sometimes you have a need. And what you find is that you're in a fellowship that is about serving others. And you benefit. But for all who will be humbled, how other ways this produces joy, is that for all those who will be humbled, there will be an exaltation. We see at the end of this passage, Jesus Christ is going to be exalted. He's going to be given the glory that He Earns that he deserves in this giving of himself, and Scripture tells us in many places. a Couple of examples: James four ten, humble yourselves before the Lord; He will lift you up. First Peter five six, humble yourselves there and for under God's mighty hand that He may lift you up in due time. See how this hymn ends with the exaltation of Christ. The day is coming. All will bow the knee to him and sing his praises. But we have the chance to do so willingly today. One day everyone will do this, whether they want to or not. They will bow their knee and they will confess. But we have the chance to do so today. He, God will, so when we think about this, with this exaltation. This humbling, this laying ourselves low. One day the humbled will be exalted. Christ will be exalted. And along with that, everyone who has put themselves aside to prefer the other will be exalted. God will make it so. Do not think for a second that your humbled service will be overlooked by God. All of this flows from seeing the great reality of Christ's work in the gospel. As God's people, we are to unite around it. We are to be humbled by it and we are to live in light of it. We remember it afresh every Sunday as we come to the Lord's table. This is what Christ has done. This is what is a table that is laid before us because Christ came to serve, not to make his rights known. And may we be the kind of church, may we be filled with the Holy Spirit to walk in the same way that Christ walked. Let's pray. Father... We desire, I desire for this church to be filled with the joy that is found in the gospel and in the putting aside of ourselves, counting others more significant than ourselves, valuing you above all things. Help us in this place, God, to create that kind of community for our own good and ultimately, God, for your glory. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.